You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University, studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? This week, we are beginning our journey down one of our most requested books uh, across our group of supporters and just our general social media audience. Everybody has been breaking into my house to beat down my door and say, (laughs) Matt, when are you going to cover The Master and Margarita? And I am here to tell you that today we start our four-part series on Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I've been really glad about that because I've been conferring with Matt's girlfriend and she said uh, those people don't actually appear, but he's been telling me he's been seeing like this weird kind of tall guy appearing in the background of his vision. And well, I'm thinking maybe this is a good sign that we should uh, get into this book. I hear it. He tells me he's a German professor of uh, black (laughs) magic. So right. So you should listen to him. I don't know what that means for me. When like strange tall German men tell me that they're um, they're you know really specialized in esoteric arts, I just kind of go along with whatever because I feel like something bad's gonna happen to me if I don't. Right, right. Yeah, you kind of have to go along with it. So, anyways, yeah, I'm excited to get into this. Master and Margarita is a, an incredible book. It is, and. We're reading chapters one through nine on this episode. And so it's, I'm excited to get into it, a little scared to get, in, get into it because there's a lot to talk about here. And, and people <laughs> are opinionated too on this book. People are very opinionated. So obviously we're going to walk in um, as carefully as we can. Not at all like a bull in a china shop. No, I'm going to cannonball in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts on the religious elements of the book. So I'm sure that all will right. leave no everyone satisfied and no one unhappy. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> can't wait to join your uh, religious splinter group after this episode <laughs> <laughs> um right uh so let's start with we've already talked a little bit about bulgakov previously in the podcast we've covered his short story morphine we've covered his novella heart of the dog you can find both of those in the show notes but matt uh just let's let's talk a bit about bulgakov it's been a while since we've covered him we should we really should. I wanted to start with why people like Master and Margarita in general, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to, to totally get it. Uh, I, there's a lot of different reasons to like the novel. Uh, for one, you can just take my word uh, at face value that this is an <laughs> extremely influential novel. Uh, everybody pretty much who studies Russian, Soviet, Slavic literature has read The Master and Margarita almost certainly. And it's probably, I would say, one of, if not the most popular novel for non-specialists getting into, uh, or not even getting into, just who want some familiarity with Russian literature. I would say, I, I mean, you have like that and like maybe some Dostoevsky, for instance. But I, I personally know a lot of people where this was like the, either the gateway or it's the only like Russian book that they've read and it, they're just kind of completely enthralled by it. It's it's had a serious and cult following pretty much ever since its publication and even before it was officially published because it circulated in sort of dissident, um, you know, copying and, and distribution within the Soviet Union known as Samizdat. Uh, so that's uh, pretty fun. And 
it kind of touches on a lot of important topics relating to writing, uh, rewriting canon, and what it means to be a writer during the Soviet period, but also more broadly. I think that's where the success of the, the, the book kind of comes into being, is it's, it's not just a... It can be read on some level as just a critique of this, the Soviet period in which it's describing, but it's also kind of, it, it, like you mentioned, Cameron, it delves into this deeper sort of theological exploration that a lot of people that I know are personally quite interested in. And I, I hope that our analysis will start to start to guide you that way and show you why people find this book so endearing and so interesting and uh, return to time and time again. But like you said... I have just a couple points on Bulgakov that I think is interesting because uh, on our podcast, at least, we tend to read, um, I would say, more socialist realism than most people. Right. Yes. Most people is almost none. So Almost. I would, I would say probably none <laughs> at all. Maybe a head nod towards cement. Right. right maybe. Yeah. So we're, we're going to read something here that is not socialist realism by any means. Uh, falls more into the sort of magical realism realm uh, by all accounts. But we're, we're reading something that's kind of going to be written in the same period. It's not really sure when Bulgakov wrote this, but we know it was written somewhere between 1928 and 1940. So this is going to be the kind of period inching towards high Stalinism. It's going to see intensification of purges, and as a result in the novel, you're going to see a lot of not-so-veiled mentions of people disappearing, uh, I think in a pretty comical way in, in the book, um, almost like an off-stage kind of death for a lot of these people. It's sort of mentioned in passing, in conversational gossip, things like that. And it, it's an interesting, I guess you could say, an interesting take on this period of Soviet life. Uh, Bulgakov, of course, was not a supporter of the Soviet system by any means. Uh, he had his experience in the First World War as a medic. These form the basis of a country doctor's notebook, which we've talked about a little bit on the podcast. Um, he was wounded very severely in these wars, and uh, he became addicted to morphine, and then this forms the basis of his novella Morphine. Uh, and then following after World War I, after the Russian Civil War, he couldn't emigrate with his family because he had typhus. Big L on that one. <laughs> and he would have wanted to emigrate because he fought on behalf of the White Army, uh, notably not the Red Army. So uh, th this experience forms the basis of the White Guard uh, and the theatrical adaptation of that, The Day of the Turbans, which Stalin quite famously loved very much and saw many, many times. Uh, he had an interesting relationship with Stalin, which included personal phone calls, uh, I believe one of which he hung up on because he thought his friend was pranking him. So uh, by the time that he's writing The Master and Margarita, he's in a situation where he is unable to publish in the Soviet Union. His plays were uh, taken off of the stage. He is attacked in the press uh, for being anti-Soviet, so on and so forth, uh, as you do at this time. And he was, you know, kind of essentially wrote this, as, as you call, for the drawer, something that's probably not really going to be seen uh, and so, like I said, it was circulated amongst the literary crowd in the Soviet Union illegally, and it had a cult following then, and then eventually it was published severely redacted, and it had a cult following then, and then, you know, eventually it's fully published, and it, you know, continues to have this cult following, and we'll 
try to tell you why. I mean, hopefully you'll be able to get that from the conversation. Um, you know, this is only our introductory episode, so you'll have to come along for the whole journey. Mm-hmm. Every episode. Every single episode. At least this one's only four and not like 12, like War and Peace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the background. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on here. And this one, uh, thankfully right now, it's not too complex, but we are going to be dealing with uh, three separate storylines here, which are all in their own way, one storyline, depending on how you want to look at it. Think about it. Uh, yeah, think about it. Very easy to follow. Luckily, we are mostly, mostly following uh, the first, I loosely call it storyline, uh, which is the story of the devil coming to Moscow. Already, if you are not familiar with Master, Master Margaret, you might see some issues with why this was not published in the Soviet Union, <laughs> you know, as is. Um, I don't understand why, but I would love to get, I'd love for you to explain. What could be so, what could be so, received so critically? How? I don't know why, yeah, <laughs> talking about religion and uh, the true story, in quotes, story of, uh, you know, Jesus Christ would be uh, a touchy subject in the, in the Soviet Union, but... We start off in Moscow at, at the Patriarch's Ponds, uh, and we've got these two guys, Mikhail Androvich, uh, uh, Alexandrovich Berlioz, who is the editor of a literary journal and chairman of a, a literary association known as Masolit, uh, which I think Matt will talk to us a little bit about later. He's meeting with a poet who goes by the name Bezdomny, or Homeless, uh, and the reason why they're there is to have a conversation about a recent uh, a poem that Homeless has put out, uh, and it's about uh, it's about Jesus, and Basically, even though it's a critical piece of like, oh, well, let's not get too much into what it's about. But basically, Berlioz is sitting him down to say, hey, I like your piece. It's not bad. However, really what we should be focusing on is the fact that Jesus didn't exist. And as they're having this conversation, uh, they see this like really tall man, maybe over seven feet, who, according to the novel, later reports cannot agree whether he was or, you know, whether he had a limp. Uh, whether it was in his right leg, left leg, if he was tall, if he was short, if he had gold teeth, platinum teeth, you know, whatever it is. And of course, as the novel notes, none of these reports have any value. But this this man walks up to them, and initially they take him for a foreigner, but he speaks Russian um, as if he were native. Uh, which So their their conception of who he is and where he comes from, maybe Germany, maybe England, uh, shifts over the co- uh, course of this conversation. And, uh, you know, this foreigner kind of sits down and says, hey... Uh, I hear you're talking about Jesus. Well, you know, of course, he did, in fact, exist. And they get into an argument over this, over the proofs for the existence of not only Jesus, but God, um, you know, whether or not man can govern. It's, it's a wide-ranging conversation. And for the most part, they take him pretty seriously, especially when he kind of tells them that he is a um, a, a professor of, um, uh, well, sort of coming to Moscow to over to see some newly found manuscripts and, and arrange them. Um, and as he's as he's doing this, he kind of has some odd asides, like telling Berlioz that he's going to die by having his head cut off by a calm small girl as part of a larger conversation about the inability of man to really rule over anything. Um, but they, they kind of let those things sort of go. And then he begins to tell them the story of, you know, in, in the process of saying, no, you know, really, Jesus was the, a real guy. Let me tell you the story. And he begins... Uh, this tale, which continues into chapter two, uh, which is where we get into the point of view of Pontius Pilate uh, through the execution of Jesus. Now, a couple things to note if you're not super uh, familiar with the story of the Bible and, and finally being forced to go to Bible study for five straight years is uh, coming in, <laughs> coming into use for once in my life. Um, the, the story of 
in brief, the story of like Jesus in the Gospels, or at least of his execution, which is told like four times over in the various Gospels, uh, is that you know Jesus is going along, he's doing his thing, he's telling tales. Um, the you know religious uh, leadership at the time are not a big fan of of what he's saying about them, uh, what his um, theology or philosophy implies for them. So they kind of conspire to come together to have him killed. They find someone to accuse him of uh, trying to incite a, the burning of a temple. Um, that, you know, that eventually confers to him the death sentence, Pontius Pilate, who is not a procurator of Jerusalem, as is suggested in the novel, but a different title. But uh, he is the one who has to confirm it and is like, basically knows that Jesus is being set up. And um, through the various, the process, the, the very end of it, he kind of like in front of the crowd when he announces the execution, he washes his hands and is like, basically, this blood is on your hands, essentially. And uh, does not feel great about it, but, you know, whatever, it's another day in the life, and then condemns him to execution. That's, in the various tellings of the gospel, that's, like, roughly what happens. I'm taking this one directly from the book of Matthew, because Matthew is most directly referenced in this book, and I didn't have time to read all four books of, uh, all four gospels of Jesus' death. (laughs) Send him back to Bible study. (laughs) Send him back. Um, So we loosely and briefly for like two or three chapters in the gospel we are from the point of view of Pontius Pilate now instead this chapter takes a really deep dive into the world of Pontius Pilate and if you are familiar with the gospels you'll notice as we follow through Pontius Pilate in this day where he uh, condemns Jesus to death uh, there are a couple things that are different but in short he's got a headache today he does not feel great he's got to receive this accused prisoner uh, so this guy comes in he's sitting there he's like all right what's your name Yeshua uh, Hanosri, which Yeshua would be the is like the predecessor. The modern Jesus comes from Latin, which comes from Greek. Jesus, which comes from, um, I I don't know if it's directly from Hebrew to Greek, but you know, in the, in the original forms, you know, the modern Jesus comes from Yeshua. Uh, Hanosri means roughly from Nazareth, so Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and he he's like, okay, are you you've been accused of? Um, trying to burn, inside a crowd to burn down a temple. Is that true? And Yeshua says, no, it's not true. And then <laughs> Pilate says, well, it's written right here, so you must have done it. <laughs> but as they, they talk more, Yeshua begins to talk about what the procurator uh, Pilate is going through and uh, basically diagnosing him. Uh, and Pilate be- comes around to see him like almost with a sense of wonder and eventually commutes his death sentence. Also, as a side point here, um, at, at the very beginning, Pilate, uh, when Yeshua calls him a good man, Pilate says, you think I'm a good man? All right, here's my buddy, Rat Slayer. And <laughs> I was like, all right, he's going to go outside and whip you until you know what to do. Uh, and I was like, no way they actually said Rat Slayer in the Russian. So I wouldn't check the Russian copy. And it's, what is it? Essentially, yeah, it is. It does translate pretty until Rat Slayer, the Russian word. I feel like we need somebody named Rat Slayer to like pulverize our podcast anyways. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good um i also i so i looked it up on the russian language wikipedia and rat slayer and i don't know how how much we can say this is true or not but the russian language wikipedia he takes that the exact word and says it refers to a rat cannibal which was used to hunt other rats although it does acknowledge in the article that that's more of a folk tale and I don't think there was a source given for that. So take that with an incredible grain of salt. But that is very funny. Okay. And it didn't acknowledge the possibility that he could have been a person controlled by a rat? Uh, perhaps under a hat. 
Right, right. Well, they, yeah, I, I'd have to see the helmets they used at this time mm-hmm. to see the possibility of that. Right. Sort of like a ancient Ratatouille situation. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, we'll see if he had, instead of getting the cooking rat, he got the incredible brutality <laughs> rat. <laughs> okay. Um, so they, they continue to have this sort of philosophical conversation out on the balcony and then suddenly Pilate gets a letter and then he, he like, he flips out and is like, did you curse the name of Kaisar or, you know, our emperor Tiberius? And Jesus says, basically, yeah, I mean, I said to, I, I was talking to this guy, Judas from Kiriath, who I met the other day. If you've read the Bible, you probably know Judas. Uh, if you don't, Jesus, Judas is the one who sells Jesus out to, um, to the Romans. And so Yeshua I guess I should differentiate Yeshua from, like, the biblical Jesus. Yeshua is basically like, yeah, I said all authority is violence, and eventually there will be a time when there is no authority of the Kaisars, nor any other sort of authority. And then Pilate's like, oh, God, okay, well, I have to have you killed now. You, I mean, Tiberius is obviously the great emperor. So then he confirms the death sentence. And we go through a similar scene where, the, in this case, the Sanhedrin or the religious... Um, the religious leaders of the community go through this whole scene where they request uh, Barabbas to be released in place of Yeshua. In this version, uh, Pilate, um, who is, unlike in the Gospels, is not married in, in Master Margarita, it just instead of, uh, it has a personal interest in trying to get Yeshua released, and they have an argument, and said, he says, you know, well, Barabbas, you know, led to the death of, of a person, right? How, how are, oh yeah, they're releasing him because, I should mention, they get to do that because it's the Passover, and as part of local custom, um, you know, local religious leaders get to commute one criminal sentence. So, um, he really, Pilate is leaning into trying to get Yeshua released, uh, and when that doesn't work, he essentially threatens uh, Kaifa, who is the religious leader, the representative of the Sanhedrin, um, and then he somewhat unhappily orders the release of Barabbas and the go asks for the execution of uh, Yeshua to go forward. Now, that whole scene, we return to, to Patriarch's Ponds, and much like you, if you read this, might have gotten really engrossed in that, um, Bizdomni and Berlioz realize they've also really fallen under this spell. Um, and then the professor, they said, you know, they start to argue with him over the truth of that. And then he's like, well, that's not what happens in the Bible. And then, you know, this professor says, well, weren't you just saying that Jesus wasn't real? So the Gospels can't be true. And obviously, you should know that nothing would happen in the Gospels really took place. The professor then tells them he knows this is true because he was there. He was on the balcony with Pilate when he, when he sentenced Jesus to death. At this point, they're like, all right, this guy's a... Not this guy's not a professor. He's not who he represents himself to be. Uh, and Berlioz hurries off to call uh, and report him, which leads to uh, him falling and dying in exactly the way that the professor had recommended. And from here on out, you kind of you follow through Moscow as people around it uh, begin to react to Berlioz's death. Uh, you have uh, you go to the Masolitz uh, Association at Gribayedov's, which refers to the House of Gribayedov, which is sort of this clubhouse where everything uh, is everyone who is a member has access to all these things, these trips, these benefits, this fantastic restaurant, um, and they party late into the night until they find out that Berlioz has died, and that kind of causes the party to die down. Homeless, who is like, doesn't quite know what to make of this, starts trying to hunt down uh, the professor because he's basically like, he must have killed Berlioz, he must have set this up. 
this this uh, this could not have been an accident when he predicted this. And as he's chasing him, he begins to realize that a sort of a retinue appears around um, around this professor. And it's a longer scene, but essentially he he runs in all these places. He begins to know for sure that he's in this house or in the river or whatever. And by the time he makes it to Grebyedovs, he is just he's wearing different clothes. He does not look great. He's freaking out, and he gets basically gets put in a psychiatric hold, and then is later committed to an institution. And in the kind of the last scene before we move on, we have the professor who now goes by Voland uh, showing up at the an apartment of, I think, uh, not super clear if it's like a roommate, this is a shared apartment situation, or like they're both in different apartments in the same apartment building, at least by the, the phrasing. But Stupa Likhodeyev, uh, who's the director of the Variety Theater and, you know, used to work with uh, Berlioz, we learned that this building, very strangely, all its occupants have been disappearing over the course of the last two years, including the wives of Berlioz and uh, Likhodeyev. But he wakes up and there's this strange man in his room who tells him, hey, I'm the performer you signed yesterday. And he looks at his papers and even though he doesn't remember anything, everything seems to be in order. So, all right, sure. They snack, uh, they have conversation. And then finally, uh, as more companions uh, come in, in, this really tall man, Koroviev, this cat who bizarrely is drinking vodka and eating sausage, who goes by the name Behemoth. And then finally, um, uh, Azello who come, you know, suddenly the short, squat uh, man with ginger hair appears, and then Volan says, this is almost perfect, you know, while I perform at your theater for at least seven performances, but there is one problem, um, and that's we're a little overcrowded here, and I think you might be the odd one out. Um, so as, as Azello appears, suddenly Stupa kind of passes out and wakes up in Yalta. And uh, at this point, you know, Homeless is committed to the psych ward, and in one final chapter, uh, we have... Uh, a guy coming to make sure that they are supposed to be here, or right, who's trying to deal with Berlioz's affairs, and um, presumably for shits and giggles, the devil has him set up and arrested for um, speculating on foreign currency, uh, <laughs> before having everyone else uh, involved in that disappeared. That is chapters one through nine. Super easy. Super, super easy to follow. Don't worry, it gets way more complex from here. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> but before we head on there, I feel like now is a good time for a quick break. We'll be back in just a second. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by our listeners. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slobbyclippod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all secondary sources mentioned. If you want to support the show but don't want to spend any of your hard-earned foreign speculative currency, you can join our <laughs> email list for free at slaviclitpod.com. Or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Questions? Comments? Want to appear on our Office Hours podcast? Drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944. Or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclitpod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right, let's get back to the devil. Okay, so let's talk about this. And I know we normally throw it over to you with a question here, but uh, do you mind if we start with talking about the obvious parallels to the terror? Because I think, uh, I want to get this out of the way first, not because I think it's not important, but because I think, I think it is important. That's why I want to talk about it. But also I think that only interpreting this through the lens of the terror um, is kind of a limiting factor. So I kind of want to talk about that before we start delving into, I think, a lot more of what we wanted to talk about. Yeah, let's do it. Cameron's pro-terror. You heard it here first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, right, most of, like, this novel would have primarily been written in the uh, 
possibly in the 30s, which is, you know, 36 to 39, but to some degree 33 onward, you have various degrees of what will later be termed the terror or, you know, the years of years of Shina, you know, whatever it is. And you can you can see that through the lens of obviously the as Matt mentioned before, the casual mention of people disappearing, right? Like in the apartment building where barely O's lives, it's just taken for granted that people will go out and go shopping and suddenly disappear or a policeman will come get them and then suddenly that person will never be seen again and neither will the policeman right you've got like the casual not i mean in the in the apartment it does inspire terror but eventually that terror just kind of falls into well that's how it is right even by the time that berlioz and you know stiopa lichodeov move in they just when their wives disappear they apparently accept it right it's that 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 is mentioned in passing that their wives have disappeared it doesn't seem to concern them too much even though it does they that seems to have not happened too long ago, right? People casually disappear. There's obviously the arrest of uh, Nikonir Ivanovich, who's the guy that, um, you know, Volin sets up, or uh, the professor, I mean, or the person. And they also pin it on someone else who then later disappears. Um, this casual mentioning, I think, I don't know if there's so much to say there other than that being built in as a, as a facet of life you know, an obvious parallel. Maybe you could also read into the specifically the story of Pilate when, you know, Jesus is condemned to death just for saying that, you know, not for acknowledging the ultimate unlimited authority of Tiberius, the great Kaiser, right? Yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that. I don't know if there's too much to say beyond that. That's why I wanted to get out of the way first. I don't know. Is there any, any thoughts you have on that or things, I, things I to think add? it's just like an interesting way that it's built into the story and, and that that's sort of like... Uh, like it's sort of at least in the first nine chapters or so the kind of absurdity of life as it exists already the devil sort of just like perfectly fits into that hmm. and it's actually probably like the devil is probably not even the weirdest character to be <laughs> in the book right because right. it's already so weird what's happening in society just on an everyday basis <laughs> Um, and so it almost gets like um, incorporated into this sort of like magical, whimsical uh, mythos of the universe in which the story takes place. So it's kind of to me, it's always been interesting how it's sort of incorporated like that. Right. And also, I guess we should underline that point where the explicit mentions to the terror or secret police are, are mentioned nowhere. The the impl- the idea here that these people are disappearing uh, is entirely by implication, thus, I think, contributing to, as you say, this sort of magical, larger magical realist universe where that's just a possibility that people accept. Right. Which in our universe, obviously, we have something to tie it to. But in this theoretical Soviet Union, there is no obvious comparison. Right. And so it, it adds like a very comical effect to something that was not so funny. Um, yeah. You know, while it was happening. But it it is... Yeah, a very interesting universe to, to set a, a, a story in. It's almost got this sort of irreverent overtone, I guess, rather than undertone to the to the action of it. Yeah, all I really had to say on that, I think that's all we have to say on that. Um, is there anywhere else you want to start now? I wanted to talk about writers because I don't think that a lot of people know how writing worked in the Soviet Union. I'm, I'm, betting, I'm betting big money. I'm doubling down, baby. <laughs> let's do it doubling down big time i just wanted to give a quick explanation on what masalit would have been and sort of like what is the gribayetov's house in like what like what is this basically uh whenever i 
had read this in class at least for non-specialist people that don't really aren't really familiar with this time it was always kind of like a confusing aspect and so Masolit would have been this sort of Soviet abbreviation for the Moscow Association of Writers or Literature for the Masses and essentially it's a it would be like a trade union but it would be a state-run trade union because uh if you're party is supposed to be representative of the people you don't need a separate trade union representing the people because you can't have two things representing the people uh so it would have been this sort of state-run trade union and all of the official writers known as official writers in the soviet union would have belonged to this sort of central literary organization and there were not unofficial writers right like you were or you weren't this was how you made a living and you could make a very good living being a writer in the soviet union and so that was essentially the trade-off. People would be like, why would you want to be a writer in the Soviet Union? Well, because it was way more secure than a lot of other countries, quite frankly. <laughs> um, the trade-off is, of course, that when you have a state-run sort of organization that organizes uh, all the writers, it's very easy to censor things that they don't like. And so that is essentially the trade-off. And so you have a high level of oversight, potential censorship, um, the... You know, state-run newspapers attacking you if you write something that they're not fond of. But this was really the only way to do it uh, legally and officially in the Soviet Union was to be right part of this. Um, people that were circulating, like I said, these like legally copied uh, variants of works, it, you're not really earning money doing that. And for the most part, a lot of things weren't allowed to be published outside of the Soviet Union that would have been seen as uh like something illegal to do if you were if you're not allowed to publish something in the Soviet Union a lot of things were smuggled out and published but uh you could get into huge trouble for doing that and so this is the sort of context in which Berlioz and the poet homeless and all of this is sort of taking place is at the level of these official writers that have these sort of comfortable living comfortable perks they have access to this house with this restaurant and everyone's rubbing elbows and it's uh, a pretty good time i think until the devil shows up and i just wanted to explain a little bit about what it would have been like to to be a writer because i think the organization of it is pretty foreign to us and the idea of being able to make like a comfortable living as a writer also is foreign to us <laughs> right it's like not a it's not just this like kind of ad hoc freelance i'll do it when i have time sort of thing it was like a you know something much different than we have today right and i think to really emphasize at least in in the terms of the novel when it's an association it really is more than just a trade union it's like this house of good yeah, though, which i think Matt will talk about a little bit more in a bit is a place to hang out it's a place where you go to get your trips it's got one of the best you know restaurants in moscow people will go there all the time you've got writers you've got journalists you've got all these you know working people who will be there until 12 o'clock one drink it and listen to jazz you know eating good food it's a, it's a, it's a, it truly is a society of sorts yeah i mean it's kind of like if you're a writer you probably wish you had something like that here now <laughs> be kind of cool <laughs> I guess any job which should give you access to a nice restaurant where people regularly hung out would be nice. Not only that, but an affordable restaurant, that would be nice. That's true. That's another big part of this. It's very affordable. It's cheaper than other restaurants and a lot nicer. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wanted to to kind of highlight that 
because I think it's, you know, since the whole action takes place at the level of the literary establishment, you have to understand how they're organized. In and out with this official. And, you know, this is sort of this idea of, like, operating within and without the system is something that is this book is i'd say concerned with maybe not a primary one but it it, in talking on you know often this book is quite funny and it's quite funny when it's addressing the peculiarities of the soviet society um and i think you know this is kind of this idea of the official writer but it also extended to the official unofficial of everything um is implied in a lot of places but it's directly addressed in one point when uh, Koroviev, who is one member of Volin's or the devil's retinue uh, is being interrogated by a guy like who are you are you an official person and then this guy Koroviev says what are official and unofficial persons it all depends <laughs> on your point of view on the subject it's all fluctuating in relative Nikonor Ivanovich today I'm an unofficial person and tomorrow lo and behold I'm an official one it also happens the other way around oh how it does which I mean I guess again you could you could tie a little bit to like rehabilitations to a certain degree and under the in those years but also just talking generally about (laughs) this this idea but also it's it's fluidity in some ways and sometimes i wanted to talk about the story structure because it's very unique let's do it very unique let's talk let's talk i tell me how it's unique so we will be able to go into this a lot more in the next couple of episodes once more is revealed to you uh, and to us as we continue on our journey. I don't want to, you know, we're going to try to avoid spoilers as much as possible uh, where we can. And so it's <laughs> be difficult to synthesize without going all the way to the end. But you can already tell that the structure of the story is very much focused on the oral storytelling aspect. It retains this sort of level of skaz, which is this right oral storytelling style specific to uh, Slavic literature. There's lots of sourcing on that that is very interesting to read that we can talk about more if people want. Um, <clears throat> some of the aspects that I noticed that I would point to immediately as uh, oral storytelling and that kind of heightened the level of sort of reverence or I don't know exactly what you call it, but the amount of times some uh, character or the narrator will make an aside to the effect of, well, the devil only knows or something like that is, you know, hilarious when you do have this Volan devil character. Uh, the entire aside on the house of Gripyedov on whether he actually lived there and the whole, the backstory with right, his aunt or, you know, whatever it was, it has no bearing really on the story itself. It's just sort of like, uh, yeah, let me bring you into this sort of like oral gossip that's going on uh, within or amongst these writers. Even the way that the transitions between chapters happen is is really interesting. The end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, the Pontius Pilate chapter, as Voland is uh, transitioning uh, into his story they end and begin with the same line in the white cloak with blood red lining with the shuffling gate of cavalrymen early in the morning of the 14th day and so on and so on and you know chapter one ends with this and begins with this and it's an interesting way to to bridge the sort of gap between uh these two worlds which are quite unlike each other this Pontius Pilate world is not uh does not seem to be this world of oral storytelling and gossip it retains a much more realist character Mm -hmm. funnily enough (laughs) and then 
uh chapter eight which i thought was just it was just like so playful which says at the same time that consciousness left stiopa and yalta that is around half past 11 in the morning it returned to ivan homeless who woke up after a long and deep sleep right the idea that the action of the story doesn't continue unless someone is deliberately talking about it or it's deliberately being portrayed to you as the reader is just such an interesting and kind of unique feature of the master and margarita mm-hmm. um I just, I enjoyed it. It, it retains the sort of like playfulness throughout it. Yeah, which I think, to your point, like that playfulness, that sort of almost conversational, not exactly style, does, like it does, especially heightens like the pilot's part, especially I think in a lot of ways, like the pilot's part getting tougher in a lot of ways. I mean, so for example, when we first have this meeting with Yeshua and Pontius Pilate, uh, you know, Yeshua, as I mentioned before, calls him a good man, please. And then Pilate's like, you think I'm a good man? Um, and then he has Rat Slayer go out and whip him. And it's a it's a pretty tough scene. It's bloody. It's it's uh, probably only matched by later on when you're hanging out with Berlioz's body. But you go from this kind of even even like the death in sort of the devil coming to Moscow, it, Berlioz's death is a little comical. Um, not comical in, in Pilate's story. Very... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that's one of the differences, though, is the whole devil in Moscow. To me, like, the devil essentially is almost like chance. It's sort of like uh, the aspects of life that can't be reduced to ideology or that cannot be calculated, right? It's almost Tolstoyan in that aspect, right? The The death of Berlioz requires a lot of things to go wrong in a row, which they do. The... Uh, the the scene with Pilate, it's it's not at all based on chance, right? It's kind of um, calling into question, you know, should you be responsible for your actions, more or less, I guess. Um, whereas there's no there's no responsibility in the in in Moscow, right? Because everything is sort of left and this sort of chance, magical, whimsical, right? There's no one really doing things directly in a lot of ways which is a very interesting difference between the two right and actually i want to narrow in on that for a second because i want to talk about volan i want to talk about the devil and this is a very interesting portrayal because when i when i came my on my first reading of master margarita i would often describe the book as sort of like a at least in relation to you know the scenes of pontius Pilate. i would tell it as sort of like an atheistic retelling of um of the gospels and now that I've read it a second time, I don't I don't think that characterization stands up. It's obviously it's not faithful to the Gospels. It is a retelling in which you know um, Judas was not a disciple, but rather just an informant. Uh, it, it's a retelling where, at least according to if you are b- believe you know the devil about how it actually went, um, you know Yeshua Al knows is not a uh, does not have any sort of magical ability or any sort of um, uh, God you know God given capabilities beyond the modern a basic man matthew levi who um the book the book of matthew is named after matthew levi but as i understand it modern scholars don't believe that this that this matthew actually wrote that they believe it was written later on um this this matthew levi in this retelling is not a disciple but rather just some dude who follows jesus around and jesus is like please stop writing that stuff down like none of that whatever you're writing down implying you know that what happened in the gospels is actually true i didn't say any of that um, it's not a faithful retelling, however, and I think it does engage with uh, a lot of, I guess, themes that you do see throughout the Bible. Maybe not 
themes that are directly engaged with as like that's the primary theme. But let, like, let's go to the devil, Volan, for a second. And over the course of um, the the Old Testament, the New Testament, you know, the original Hebrew texts and then the, um, the New Testament, the sort of Christian edition, uh, you have very different perspectives of the devil. You have Old Testament, which tends to be a little bit less like this idea of Satan or Ha-Satan is not so much a particular person as it is a title. I think the closest it comes to becoming a person is in uh, the book of Job when it's, uh, you know, Ha-Satan, when it's like a particular person who questions God, um, which if you want to know more about that, you can listen to our episode on Leviathan. Um, but it's not like this celestial evil being this fallen angel archetype. You don't see that in the Old Testament. Um, I'm not even certain you actually see that in the New Testament. That's a lot of, there's, I think something to, to acknowledge is a lot of, um, this is, I think, true to some degree for all religions, but I can only speak to Christianity for this. There is a lot of fan fiction, which has become <laughs> understood to be canon, like the the influence of, uh, what was it, Deliverance Lost, um, probably the that idea of, which is, of course, not from the Bible, has influenced Christian beliefs as much as the actual Bible has in a lot of ways. Or, you know, the, the Apocrypha, these books of the Bible, which the Catholic Church considered not real in some way and had removed or excised at some point. And so there's these certain books which are considered, apoc- you know, and can, you've got the modern term apocryphal, believe, you know, a tale that's not true. So the portrayal of the devil in the, the New Testament does relate more to like a singular celestial being who does take on this sort of characterization of evil as like an opposition to good of God, which is an interesting difference where in the Old Testament you got the God of Job from whence all good and all evil comes. But then in the New Testament you have this sort of difference where, you know, when, when the Jesus of the New Testament talks about, you know, the devil and hell, it is sort of an evil force. It is an opposition to God. Whereas in the Old Testament, to the extent that that exists, it's more of a shadow of God. It's more, you know, another aspect. And that's why I think Volan is very interesting because you've got, considering not only Volan, but also his retinue, you've got Volan who's sort of like kind of an Old Testament. Like he's not really evil. I mean, he comes in here and he hears these two guys arguing and is like, hey, just, you know, Jesus totally did exist. I mean, didn't go how they tell it in the Gospels, but I feel it's my duty to tell you that he is a real guy or, you know, was, um, and you've got his, so he, and then he also, when he's doing these, you, you could, to a certain degree, he is doing these things. He's predicting these deaths, but he's not actively causing them to a certain degree. You could say he's just like, he kind of can see out of time and right. He can, he can predict what's going on, but he also does explicitly play jokes on people. And when I say jokes, it's like, Hey, have that. I don't like him. Have him disappeared. Um, you know, and then you know people will get arrested. But it is a little bit more. It's a little comical. It's it's not actively like evil. Whereas some of his retinue, the characters of each one, each of these um, characters takes their names from from various parts of the Bible. Um, and there's this interesting article which uh, I'm not going to delve too much into called "Satan in Moscow: An Approach to Bulgakov's The Master Margarita" by A.C. Wright, which goes into each of their names. Obviously, we've got Behemoth of the Cat, uh, Koroviev, who is not a <laughs> biblical demon, uh, but and Azazel, who is. They're all mentioned in various places in uh, in the Bible or in Hebrew texts, and so. But they all have different aspects, and they all, to the extent which you could call them, kind of evil, versus the extent you could call them kind of just go along with it um it portrays like a kind of a wide ranging wide ranging view or different viewpoints that have occurred over various points in time which have come together to you know be 
covered in the Hebrew text and later on the Christian Bible, which I think are an interesting engagement with those ideas. And I, I think later on I can say more about that, but just for now as a setup, that's something I found very interesting. Yeah, this is really kind of comical, the articles that we were reading for this, because I don't think that we can even totally get into it at the at the onset of the book, but it is such an interesting question to start broaching. I read this one, which is open access and was wonderful, and you can, uh, you know, take a look at it on our on our prep guide on our website. For all of our supporters out there, there is one <laughs> called "Neither God Nor Devil: A New Theological Approach to Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita" by Hannah Schneider. That was published in the International Journal of Russian Studies. And the claim in this article, which actually does cite AC writes and a bunch of other like influential readings of Master and Margarita, which if you're trying to get a grasp on like what people are saying, this was actually a good article because it actually outlined a lot of what the previous approaches were. And essentially the article's conclusion is that none of them really fully encapsulate what Bulgakov is doing. They all try to fit uh, the novel into a sort of pre-existing Christian conception of God and devil. And this article argues actually that the novel doesn't quite give us enough of a basis for that. Uh, and that we don't end up with God or devil in the novel. We get sort of Bulgakov's own uh, approach to building a theology mm. uh, of sorts. And this article is, is actually quite interesting and takes the point of view quite a little bit the opposite to uh, what you were saying earlier. Well, on one, on the Old Testament God saying that it doesn't quite, or the Old Testament devil saying that it doesn't quite uh, hold up, but I can't quite explain why because we haven't gotten <laughs> to all of all of these, these issues yet. But also right. actually saying that this whole um, analogy between Jesus and Yeshua doesn't really uh, hold ground here and that we might not really be able to read it quite as an analogy uh, for Christ, and that there are actually some significant differences uh, between the two. And so that's, I think, where they sort of form the basis of, well, this is sort of Bulgakov's own thing. We shouldn't just read it as a complete analogy. And so that's an interesting question to, like I said, to start to broach as we get further along. Um, because like you said, I always had really heard it as right people trying to co-opt it into some sort of encompassing you know theological approach but it is a little too complex i think in a lot of ways for that yeah no I, yeah i think I, I i agree i i think it's more interested in any of the questions than any of the theology but that'll we'll we'll develop these ideas as we go we got so much left to do so much left to talk about if you do happen to read this you know i think one of the things that it will i will kind of speak forward to is that um, I mean, the entire book is great, but the bits with Pilot are some of like the most arrest, arresting fiction I think I've ever read, just in mm -hmm. terms of how it's like the rest of I mean, the book is fine. It's all good. It's all good writing. But the pilots, you know, it seems like that that's really I think it's heightened because of its uh, interaction with the rest of the book. It would not I don't think it would be as powerful on its own. But, no. you know, the conversation between Pilot and Yeshua is, is really, really fascinating. Mm hmm. There was just like one theme that I was noticing here a lot, which I think relates to this insanity, madness, absurdity conversation that we're having. The amount of people with headaches in the first nine chapters, I did not mark them all, but by the end I was like, wow, everybody's head hurts in Moscow <laughs> and in pilot times, I guess, because pilot has a headache and is cranky. 
the whole time. And then Homeless, in his conversation with Stravinsky, the doctor, there is uh, mentions of heads hurting, if you pay attention. There is a lot of different mentions of this throughout the first nine or so chapters, and probably will continue throughout the book. I don't remember because I didn't notice this last time, <laughs> last time right. I read, but... Um, that was one interesting thing I wanted to note. And then the last one that I thought was interesting that I know we said we shouldn't read it all as sort of Soviet analogy, but this conversation in chapter eight between Homeless and Stravinsky was actually really interesting. I sort of read it as like um, interrogation analogy. This whole thing where, where the doctor's trying to evaluate whether Homeless is, you know, losing his mind, basically. Right. And he's telling them all these things that happened and he's sort of kind of like logically, but kind of in like a gaslight gatekeep Soviet boss kind of way. <laughs> right. Like doing it and kind of leading him through like how he's no matter what he does, he's just going to end up in this uh, in this facility again. So he may as well just stay. There's this line that says his will seemed to crack and he felt himself weak in need of advice. And there's kind of like. I don't know. I felt just so much analogy between the way that the doctor was kind of strong arming him into agreeing uh, with a lot of um, things related to Soviet interrogation that I that I read and the kind of like mental pressure that they could apply to get people to confess or kind of do whatever, because it was just this kind of like incongruous uh, situation where you're being interrogated for being a spy or something, which seemed like absolutely absurd. Hmm. Um and then on, on the on the flip here, you have this sort of like incongruity between uh, what Stravinsky sees and what had happened to Homeless, right? And one is sort of strong-armed into accepting his fate, more or less. Right, yeah. Which is interesting, I thought. It is. I mean, I think you can kind of see a similar-ish scene almost in the interaction between Pilate and, and Yeshua where, you know, Pilate's like, <laughs> what do you mean you didn't do it? It's written right here. Obviously, you had to have done it. Um, right. It's sort of, you know, I mean, there's a little bit more of a back and forth because Stravinsky's it's, it's theoretically a diagnosis. Um, although I should, you should point out that uh, one of uh, homeless's buddies, short of buddies, they don't get along that well. I the buddy thought they were buddies. Homeless disagrees right. uh, is there the whole time, which does I think take on a little bit to your point, a little bit of interrogation where you know Stravinsky, you know, he's like diagnosing homeless to his face and also to the other people in the room. <laughs> Mm-hmm. who are, mm-hmm. you know, giving their own input, you know, I think in, enhancing that sort of interrogation feel it has. Yeah. It was just something that I noticed on this read through that I was like, mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I read, um, I don't want really to get too much into this, but uh, I think it's an article by, I want to, I think it's Eric Erickson, the satanic incantation parody in Bulgakov's The Master Margarita, who posits mm-hmm. this interesting, uh, for, for homeless specifically, um, his, you know, his, his diagnosis of schizophrenia and, Erickson puts forth this argument that uh, you can see that sort of in relation to the various world like attitudes, which are like roughly on a spectrum. You could have Berlioz on one end, which is like purely materialistic, purely, you know, sort of so Soviet socialist reality, the devil, which is much more fantastical on the other end. And then uh, Bezdolny, homeless, uh, sort of not exactly in the middle, but open to like some of the questions that uh, the devil is putting forth, but also not quite listening. And by the by virtue of not existing on either end he's then diagnosed with and and he's treated as um you know not mentally fit by the rest of society is then de- de- diagnosed with schizophrenia this inability to tell 
you know, reality in heavy quotes here, because of course, you know, we know in the context of this book, he does know reality. It's just that the others around him have collectively decided that they can't, it, it, that it can't logically be, uh, you know, proven. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot more to talk. I mean, there's so much to cover. There's this is book is like full, but also I think we're coming up on our on our time. I also just have such a hard time because I want to jump forward in it, but I can't. Right, I shan't. I shan't. I will refuse. Yeah, it's. T- I mean, because there's there's so much to talk about going forward, and also here. I mean, we didn't even have a chance to talk on the conversation between the devil and Berlioz to a certain degree of. You know, the the humor of Berlioz saying, you know, neither Jesus nor the devil exists. And the devil standing there says, really, the devil doesn't exist. That's fascinating. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. And so there's, yeah, if you do read it, there's, you will catch a lot of stuff, which we didn't even have a chance to talk about. And hopefully in later episodes, we can talk more about it and develop more. But it's, seriously, this novel is so chock full of stuff. You should, I mean, I mean, I recommend you read everything we cover. But Master Margarita just is a personal favorite of mine. So I would absolutely recommend you grab a copy. And... If there are things that we didn't talk about that you want to tackle, you should join our Discord link in the description, and we'll be happy to talk more about it there. Absolutely. All right, Matt, before we totally wrap up, I got to ask, you know, keeping in mind that we are only covering longer reads once a month, we will not be continuing, unfortunately, Master Margarita directly next episode, but don't worry, it'll be back soon. But what instead are we tackling next week? Uh, Next week, we got a new format type thing for you. We're, We're hosting Office Hours. And we hope you'll join us. We got a lot of good questions from our community already for this for this episode. It's going to be a, a bit of a beatdown. This is going to be good. Right. Yeah. There is no credit for attending office hours, but you do get favorable grading in the uh, final paper. Right. I mean, I'm not allowed to tell you that you do, but you definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> to help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all of the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, SlavicLitPod.com. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters. Yes, and that's my, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, and Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pakrob. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Perimoka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. 